Hi everyone, this is International Society of Hypertension Podcast. I'm Associate Professor Francine Marques from Monash University, Australia, and my co-host is Dr. Augusto Montesano from the University of Glasgow, Scotland. Welcome back, everybody. Today is my pleasure to introduce to you Professor Tony Hegarty, who is a clinician scientist, a professor of medicine, and the head of the School of Medical Sciences in the University of Manchester in the United Kingdom. Uh, Professor Hegarty has served as a chairman of the editorial board of clinical science and on the editorial boards of hypertension, the journal of hypertension, current hypertension reviews and blood pressure, as well as the journal of vascular research and other 10 journals. And in 2021, he was appointed the editor-in-chief of the Journal of Hypertension, the official journal of the International Society of Hypertension. He also has been president of the British Hypertension Society, and that's when I met uh, Tony in uh, 2012, uh, the European Society of Hypertension, uh, as well as the International Society of Hypertension, and he is an honorary member of the Czech, Romanian, Venezuelan Societies of Hypertension. Uh, Tony has uh, won uh, many, many uh, awards, has a very impressive uh, CV and list of achievements. And he is also, uh, he was the co-chair of the review committee for the 2018 um, European Society of Hypertension Guidelines. So it's a pleasure to have you here with me. Thank you so much for taking the time. Pleasure, pleasure, absolute pleasure. <laughs> So let's get started, and I, I would love to hear uh, your story, how you ended up in medicine, in research, and in hypertension. All right, so uh, I graduated from London, and um, after doing a few junior posts, I decided to pursue a career in cardiology. And in those days, in order to uh, secure your final position, uh, at that time, I was thinking about being an NHS consultant. You had to do some research. And I'd ended up in Leicester, which was uh, just beginning to work uh, through um, its first cohort of um, undergraduates in its medical school. And um, there was a lectureship vacant in the Department of Medicine. And I didn't know anything about academic medicine, but I went to see the head of the department, who was a legend. Uh, called Professor John Swales. And uh, he and I had a polite conversation and he offered me the opportunity to take the lectureship and begin a research career. At that time, um, there were two things which were amusing, I think in retrospect. He was very interested in uh, renal hypertension. He was a nephrologist by training and they had rat models of, of high blood pressure. And even though I knew nothing about research, and I genuinely mean that, I told him I didn't want to research the rat. And so he said, all right. He said, what are you going to do? And I said, I'm going to research humans. And I think in those days, uh, he just smiled and said, well, go ahead. And he allowed me to do what I wanted. Um, and I had met a Danish researcher called Christian Alkia, and he was looking at small arteries and the small arteries were the cause of hypertension. And so uh, I asked him whether he could study human small arteries in his little myograph, his organ chamber. And he said he could, 
uh, if I could provide them. And eventually uh, we got a little grant from the British Heart Foundation for 5,000 pounds. And he came for six months. And I think I spoke to him just last month. He said it was the hardest six months he's ever worked. <laughs> and uh, we produced a paper in The Lancet and a paper in uh, circulation in the six months that we worked together. Wow. And we established a small artery research program in, in Leicester. And to John Swale's credit, he just allowed me to do anything I wanted in Leicester. And uh, I was eternally grateful for him. But the thing which was really interesting was that within a remarkably short, short period of time, I knew that research was really fun and I didn't want to go back to full-time NHS work. And so the next thing that happened was um, John said to me, don't go back. He said, you could be an academic physician. So you could spend half your time doing research and half your time doing clinical work, but you'd have to give up cardiology because that's a full-time wow. discipline really. And, and that's what I did. I didn't look back. Eventually I got a British Heart Foundation senior research fellowship and during that time, I was approached about becoming professor of medicine in Manchester. And I moved from Leicester to Manchester. John wasn't going to stop me, but he, he, he knew that I was really headstrong. I was pretty young and arrogant, I think. And I, I went and I, I think we remain friends, but, but, uh, you know, it was it was a wrench for both of us, I think, at that time, because we were, we were having such a good time. He was such a wonderful man to know and to, uh, to advise me. And um, I'm forever grateful for for him introducing me to hypertension and hypertension research. And there you are in three minutes. There's my career. Oh, good job. Yeah, yeah. I think some of the most uh, uh, generous mentors, uh, they um, they can see the potential and they're always happy to promote their uh, the mentees to follow their dreams and to follow the career path that they want to take independent of whether that's going to benefit them or not. I think that's right. And I, I mean, throughout my career, and I, I have... I really feel, of course, the future is in, in the young investigators. And I, the, the one thing I lament in academic life in the UK, and I think globally, is the fact that most heads of department had a little bank account. And there were a few, a few hundred thousand sort of squirreled away. And, and if, you, if you saw an idea, you'd, you'd throw some money at it and see whether you could get something out of it. That's rather disappeared from, from the research programs mm -hmm. of 2022. But still, beyond that, there is the need to advise um, youngsters in, in choppy waters, there's no question. And, and people, they, they do need a bit of guidance. And, and um, uh, I think it's half the job and it's, it's fun too. Absolutely, yeah. It's that part of the job I really enjoyed as well. Yeah. And um, you have contributed uh, enormously to so many different uh, societies uh, about hypertension. I was wondering if you can comment on how um, this uh, time that you have spent contributing and serving in these committees has helped you with your career as well. 
Yes, I, I, that, I read that question and I knew you were going to ask it. Um, I, I think it, it has contributed to my career in as much as it's, it's taught me how to uh, work with other people, work with difficult people at times, um, and further the hypertension agenda. And I think personally, certainly from the International Society of Hypertension perspective, uh, when I was on the committees, the council, and when I was president, I really felt that what we needed to do was to educate in the developing world. And um, the two things which I, I take great pleasure from were the fact that many national societies set themselves up around that time. And so I was able to help them do so. And also um, that we took the message to the developing world, uh, not every country, of course, but we were there trying to spread the word so that the epidemic of cardiovascular disease, which is inevitably going to overtake these countries, could be anticipated. So how did that translate into my own career? Well, I think it made me a wiser person without doubt. It also opened my eyes to the problems elsewhere. There were also people who wanted to do research who perhaps didn't have the laboratory-based facilities that, that I personally had, but we could work together. Mm -hmm. And so it was a combination of collaboration and experience that I gained, I think. Yeah, no, that's wonderful, yeah. And that's something that is really important uh, for the uh, ISH and for our podcast is a uh, mentoring. And you touched on the role that John had in your career path. But I would love for us to expand a little bit and talk about um, your path as a mentor and a mentee as well. Um, can you define your mentorship experience for us in one word? Pleasurable. Oh, lovely. Yeah. And I think, yeah. I mean, if I could expand on that, yeah. now I give it one word. As I said, I think it, it should be in the DNA of every head of department, irrespective of the research area in which they're exploring, uh, to provide um, a place for advice and counsel for, for younger investigators in, in, in any part of their research careers um, and uh, you know it's it, it's it, it, it's not an easy path academic life mm -hmm. and as as we were saying before we started the podcast research is 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 um, beset with troughs and peaks there are troughs because you can't get funding there are troughs when the experiments don't work and there are peaks when the when the data come in and you can publish them and when you get your money and, and you can go on doing your research. So people do need even just to have um, some, some mental support when things don't go well, the, 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 the metaphoric arm around the shoulders and, and um, that people have to understand it isn't all milk and honey when you're doing research. So I, I think it's, um, it's part of the job, but I think it's a pleasurable part, very much so. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. And do you think mentoring is important? Very. It's vital. It's vital to it's vital to the future of academic research in all branches of of the discipline, um, because, um, as I say, people are inexperienced. 
they uh, they may have their own views on the where they want to go, but they may not know how to get there. Uh, and I think they need some guidance. Um, the most important thing I think is that people listen. <laughs> so you've got to get the message across so that they actually um, think that it's a sound one. Um, but I, and I also, I, I take great pleasure in the fact that I hope that I've, I've mentored people outside of hypertension as well. Um, because I think, you know, the, the, the prerequisites for mentoring are absolutely uniform, heterogeneous across every discipline. Um, but um, I think it's important that people have someone who can look objectively at what they're doing and point out where there may be problems or where there are potential pitfalls or um, make, make comments which you hope are constructive. Yeah. What you don't want is, is someone to come in and you say your research is awful, pack up and do something else. Uh, but you may need to phrase it in a, in a milder way and <laughs> try and help them out. But most people want, they just need a little bit of uh, guidance in the right direction. And I think that is a very, very important and vital, and as I say, a repeat, pleasurable part of, of any leadership job. Absolutely. And, and I really like the way you put it as being a vital part of continuity of research as well. I think that's so important. Yeah. Yeah. And was there any time specifically in your career that you realized you needed a mentor? Well, I certainly needed John when I started because I had no idea about research whatsoever. I mean, I was just told by the cardiologists in my department to go and do some research, but I didn't understand exactly what that meant or how to design an experiment or, or um, even publish it afterwards. Um, and to his credit, I, I remember those sessions with John Swales. He had a whiteboard in his office and Friday afternoons we spent putting data up and, and designing new experiments for the following week. Uh, but as, as yes, as I'm, I still will go and seek advice, even at the advanced stage in my career, if I, yeah. I feel I'm, I'm, I'm not best placed or I'm undecided, I, I still feel it's important that you have somebody to whom you can turn. I don't think that necessarily has to be in your own discipline either. If you've got someone with enough experience, they can look at everything from a helicopter, really, and and you know, make some constructive comments on, on where you should go. But yeah, I still have, I, I would still look towards seeking advice. I think that is the maxim I would tell any youngster, always seek advice. Yeah, that's very good advice, yeah. And what is your personal mentoring style? And do, can you think of any examples of ways that you have helped your mentees that you could tell us a little bit about? I don't know whether it's commendable, but I mean, uh, normally, um, certainly in Manchester, we will nominate mentors for all young investigators when they begin their research here. And that in the department here in the hypertension side of things, we would not be any exception. So, you know, uh, we, we would meet, I would meet them um, and um, let them talk through their plans. And if I feel that they're realistic, then I'm happy. We'll write them all down so that we've got a record. Um, we'll correct them if we feel they're overambitious or um, perhaps not the way to go. Uh, get a, get a mutual, mutually accepted plan 
and then periodically meet again to see how it's going. Um, and I'm at the, in between those set meetings, I make sure that each mentee knows that all they have to do is knock on the door rather than make an appointment and uh, tell me what's worrying them. So the, it's a two-stage process. But I think it should be, people should have trust and uh, believe in, in the system uh, so that uh, they can, even if it's the smallest of things, come and say it's not working. Because if they let it fester, if they don't do something about it, there's no point at the end of say two or three years, you know, uh, when you're asked the question, how's your research gone? You say, well, it hasn't gone at all. You say, why? Because I couldn't get it going. You know, you, you, you've got to have this interaction with your mentor so that these sort of problems don't arise. So I think it's, it's a mixture of formality and informality. Um, there must be a formal process so that everybody knows where they stand. Everybody's in agreement on the plan. But if the plan goes wrong, there should be the chance to redirect it or redraw it. Yeah, no, absolutely. You mentioned something that I think is really important. It is the trust building process. And uh, trust is not building the big moments or in the uh, big meetings. It is building these small moments when the mentees actually need the help and they feel comfortable in coming to you. And I think having the open door policy, even if these days it's a virtual open door, I think that's that's really important. Yeah, they've got to they've got to know that um, they can come at any time. That there isn't an, a need to to, to wait three months for an appointment, they've got to burst through the door and say, and because it doesn't take too long, yeah. you know, if the IT structure doesn't work, we need it fixed. If yeah. the, if the patients aren't coming in, we need to find them. You know, if the ethics committee hasn't done its job, we need to sort that out. Uh, yeah. yeah. And uh, what traits do you think a good mentee has? Well, I, I read that question in advance of the podcast. The mentee has to be able to listen. The mentee has to uh, be prepared to change. Uh, and I, I, if you remember, I said I was young and arrogant at the beginning. It was very difficult for me to change. I, I, I just couldn't see it. I hated my papers being rejected. I, I wanted to, you know, write these these um, aggressive rebuttal letters and things to the reviewers and things uh, on my grants whatever I think you have to you have to learn to listen and to understand that um, the world is not out to get you Pe peer review may not be the best way of doing things but it's the one that we work to and I think it's 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 really um, I think you need to be receptive to advice so listen and be prepared to accept what you don't think is right <laughs> in other words go and look go and think about it before rejecting yeah yeah no absolutely i don't think any of us like our papers being rejected <laughs> <laughs> and uh, when your trainees come to you for advice on their next position is there anything specifically that um, you usually tell them about uh, finding the next place, finding a good training environment where they're going to get proper support? 
I make no secret of the fact that I'm against people staying in one place um, for the whole of their careers. I think that uh, movement um, uh, through higher education centers benefits the center and also the individual because you learn to do things in different ways and you bring to another center what you've learned from, a, from your previous place of work. Um, so I, I, if I feel that the environment is best for an individual where they are, I will say so. But if I feel that perhaps they need to gain another skill or um, that their research is going in such a direction that they need to join a particular uh, group, then, then I would make those, mm -hmm. those comments and I would obviously make contact to see whether I could facilitate that process. Oh, that's really nice, yeah. I think, the men, uh, I think a mentee needs to, um, well, I think you need to obviously reach an accord with your mentor on the next steps. Um, but when you go back to the beginning, the process should be, well, you're, you're in this job, so the next job is this sort of fellowship or uh, you need to get this sort of grant or maybe you need to learn this new skill in the, in the next few years or you need to apply this technology to this particular area of expertise. And then it really works seamlessly because then you're, you, you've really got one eye on where you want to go. And uh, the other thing I, 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 I re impress upon um, mentees is they shouldn't be afraid of a period away from their host institution um, to go abroad and learn and, and broaden their skill mix. Um, the, you know, we, we hear all these um, academic phrases now about um, big team science and, uh, and um, uh, multidisciplinary approaches um, and um, cross-faculty collaboration. These are all the buzzwords at the moment. <laughs> and some of them have some merit. I mean, the days of a, a single investigator getting a seminal paper have largely disappeared. You really need a multidisciplinary approach. So I, I think once you've got these sort of almost foundation um, areas in your head, um, then you can build a career around that. And I think the other thing that I, I would impress upon mentees is, is um, do learn to collaborate. Absolutely. Don't keep your data to yourself. Go and share it and go and, go and discuss it with, with people. Um, at the moment, for example, in, in um, this country, the Wellcome Trust is changing its um, research priorities. And the effects of climate on health are, are really things that they want to support. And we, we are working very hard with the Tyndale Center, which is world famous on uh, the effects on climate change on, on the environment uh, to look into health. And that, that requires a certain amount of facilitation. We can send our mentees over there to gain experience, but what we really need is to get all the teams together in one room. But mm -hmm. we're doing that. So but people have to have that larger picture perspective. And uh, it is something, again, that I would try and impress upon mentees. Think outside of your own little box. Yeah, no, I think that's a very good advice. And I, I was very lucky to, um, during my first postdoctoral training, to have the opportunity to go to uh, Professor Maciej Tomaszewski's lab 
uh, in Leicester at the time uh, for um, two periods of time. Uh, and it was a really good experience to be able to uh, take some techniques, also learn a few uh, different techniques and bring it yeah. back. Um, so I absolutely agree with that. But, and yeah. see how it's done in another place. That's the other interesting thing. You know, uh, in Denmark on a, on a uh, Friday afternoon, it's coffee and cake and, and, and discussion. Uh, and, and, yeah. uh, that's something you can bring to any lab. <laughs> yeah, 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 no, absolutely. But yeah, no, you're right. Like it, uh, in Australia, for example, they love the international postdoctoral experience. And, uh, and for me, this is my international experience because I'm not from here. So having the opportunity to go to another lab to learn other techniques and bring back and collaborate and develop those international collaborations that way was really important as well. So sure. I, yeah, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so I have a question <laughs> and that's a question that uh, is uh, based on my own experience. So um, I have to confess, I was a little bit um, intimidated coming into this interview <laughs> today, a little bit scared, <laughs> even for you, you're lovely, but I was still, and that's just uh, me. I can be sometimes scared um, going into these interviews. Um, and you have made my life much easier. <laughs> but I was just wondering if you have any advice for people like myself uh, that may feel intimidated, how they can actually reach out and go and talk to someone in a conference or if they want to reach out to someone to start a collaboration and so on. Yes. Uh, there's a lot to that question, actually, um, in 2022. Um, and some of it you may not have fully anticipated in terms of my response um, and I mean it, it before I answer the specifics I mean it does play to the EDI agenda and I feel very strongly about that in terms of uh, why is it that women don't seem to have as many successful careers I'm not talking that they fail but there aren't that that many female academics in higher education, um, and why why is that? And, and, and you've put your finger on it. it. I mean, you could be male and be intimidated, but there's also this, this feeling that, that, that um, academic, what the academic world is male dominated, and uh, that needs to be addressed. So I, I just put that down because I, I think it is an important issue for the future. And I know the ISH has, has um, is looking at this in terms of females in research and 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 um, uh, branches of, of the society. So coming back to yeah, you're you're not alone. I, I remember being at big meetings, ISH meetings, and uh, waiting for the council to um, finish its meeting outside the council room door, so I could speak to a member of the council about something, and I was really quite worried and frightened about this. So you're not alone. I think that basically you have to understand and that, that everybody, well, the majority of people, not only in academic life, but the majority of people are courteous and would be, they would be, I think they, they, they would be upset if they intimidated you. And, and they would be happy to talk to you. So I think you, what you have to do is to forget about whether you feel intimidated or not and ask your questions. 
if somebody is horrible, you'll get that message pretty quickly and you won't want to interact with them anyway. But yeah. most people are by and, by and large good natured and will be open to, to helping you or advising. And um, I also feel that um, if you feel that you want to ask a question in the um, days of the internet and email, then electronically contacting a, the biggest man in the world is still possible. They'll either answer or they won't answer. And you can make your, you can base your judgment on whether they're nice or horrible and whether they answer or not. <laughs> but they use most of, most of the, the, the very, very senior and well-established and successful investigators whom you would put up on a pedestal as being absolutely outstanding, almost unapproachable, will answer your emails and help you out. So I wouldn't be, I would, I would swallow your nerves and get on with it and ask. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that's very good advice. And, uh, and through the podcast interviews as well, uh, we have had the uh, pleasure and honor to interview so many lovely people that I was absolutely terrified of. So it has been a really good experience. <laughs> I was in the same position, so <laughs> I'd hate it if you went off this thing. I was still terrified at the end. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm feeling much more comfortable now. Thank you. <laughs> uh, and uh, you, you mentioned um, diversity and uh, equity, and uh, I was very keen to talk to you about this uh, in your position of uh, head of school as well, that uh, I believe there's such a big... Uh, um, big attention and focus on trying to drive this increase in uh, diversity and equity at the moment. I was wondering uh, if you can comment on your opinion, what is the biggest barrier for uh, diversity and inclusion? I, did, it's, it, it's, I, I don't know the answer to that question. I, 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 if I can, I'll think about it while I'm talking, I guess. In the School of Medical Sciences in Manchester, uh, we have an executive, which I chair, and we have we have six um, divisions uh, for line management purposes. So there are six division leaders. Three are female now. So um, we've we've addressed that. Um, we have uh, females in senior positions um, in ethnicity and diversity. Um, and the head of the MBCHB program, that's the medical undergraduate program, is, is a female as well. Um, and just with my Journal of Hypertension hat on, uh, we've, we've put, um, and let me see now, three females on the executive editorial team. And I think we are now above, we're nearly at 25% representation of females on the editorial board um, and we were you know we're addressing that but then you add in the next dimension which is um, ethnicity mm -hmm. and we're still way behind mm -hmm. um, and um, I don't I, I mean there are issues about people from ethnic backgrounds wanting to do research and wanting to have a position in academic life um, but that needs to change as well. Um, the University of Manchester has appointed a director of ethnicity and diversity, uh, and she is from Nigeria. Wonderful, wonderful to work with. Um, and she, she 
she tells you the challenges for females and females from ethnic backgrounds. Um, so, I mean, I, I think there is, a, coming back to your point about intimidation and, oh, I'll never get on, on in this world um, because I'm female, and then adding another dimension of ethnicity into it. Those things are prejudices and preconceptions that need to be thrown out. And if you're good enough, you're going to be hired. It's as simple as that. And I, I, I feel that the School of Medical Sciences is enriched, and I'm certainly learning fast by the interactions that I have as we expand the EDI agenda in SMS. It's, it, it's great fun. But I mean, it shouldn't be a priority. It should be a priority, but it shouldn't have to be a priority. We should be doing it automatically. You know, we should be saying, we shouldn't even be thinking about it. We'd be saying, right, there's a man and a woman. Who's the better one? And that's the way it should be. We shouldn't be saying, well, we should, we might make this appointment because it's a, we'll, we'll put the woman in because we need more women. We should say, look, they're equally good and make the appointment. But we can't do that. You know, there has to be a certain push forward of, of um, the EDI agenda. And it should be the center of everything that we do, both in research, clinical work, and in academic life in the organizational context. There's a lot to do. Yeah. Um, Have you considered uh, reverse mentoring? Uh, yeah. What does that mean? That You're mentoring me. That would mean someone junior in your school or in the society actually talking to you about the issues that they face because they are from one of the underrepresented uh, um, categories. I haven't, I mean, it sounds a great idea. I mean, I would embrace it 100%. I hadn't thought of it, but yeah, of course. It, I, again, it comes back to the arrogance gene I talked about in my early career, I, I probably think I know all about it, <laughs> but maybe I need to know more. <laughs> yeah, because I think sometimes like um, we don't, and, and I have I have been there recently interviewing someone in the podcast, um, we don't realize because, because of whatever privilege that we had that what other people might go through and what are the barriers that they specifically face and how we can try to change that because their story is so different from ours? Sure. Um, and yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm open to listening to that. I really yeah. am. But I mean, if I open my door of my office, the, the diversity of backgrounds of our students on the floor out there suggests to me that we're beginning to do something right. But yeah, there may be more I can learn. So I need to remain open to, to change. Yeah. I think that's very important. So yeah, I'm happy to listen. I'm 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 not deaf yet. <laughs> no, that's really lovely. And I think like if uh, if I can speak like um, as a woman from um, from another country uh, as well, I think one of the biggest barriers that we see is in terms of retention. We know that uh, at least in countries such as Australia and I think the UK as well, women finish the PhD at similar rates as uh, uh, men. But then as uh, we look up at a higher uh, level, academic level, such as uh, professors and associate professors, the retention goes lower and lower for women. So yeah, it's changing yeah. that, that concept of that we can't be what we can't see. 
We don't and, know why, though. I mean, we've done a lot of work in the University of Manchester and in the School of Medical Sciences. The University of Manchester has set um, levels for success, gauging success. Uh, and you're absolutely right. Postdoctorally and up to lecturer, senior lecturer and, and reader and chair, there is a fall off. There is a fall off in, uh, for reasons we don't fully understand. There's also a problem with um, uh, promotion. Yeah. Uh, for some unknown reason, um, females, forget the ethnicity side of things, females do not seem to advance their cases as eagerly as males when it comes to the annual promotions rounds for reasons that, you know, I think it's the, well, we, there's a multi, multiplicity of reasons put forward like fear of failure or rejection or something like that. But um, the cases are e they're equally as good, you know, mm -hmm. equally as deserving. Um, mm -hmm. I, I pride myself, Natalie Gardiner, you, is, 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 she leads our social responsibility agenda in the school. And uh, she tells me that our rates are above the university rates for um, recruitment at senior lecturer uh, and at lecturer. Uh, we're, not, we're, we're not on the target for professors, mm -hmm. but um, she's uh, uh, in my ear every day. So we'll get there, I'm sure. Yeah, no, that's wonderful. Yeah. What, uh, from my personal experience as well, I wouldn't have applied for promotion if it wasn't for my head of school to ask me many, many times to apply because I didn't even think that I would be eligible or, or successful in doing so. so it's, it, yeah. it's in your head, you see, and that's the point. We've got to yeah. get that out. We've got to, we've got to expunge those genes, the rejection genes, <laughs> and get on with it, you know. Yeah. But that's something that definitely as a head of school, like you, you, you know your people and you can identify uh, those and, and keep asking because that was the thing for me. I just, oh, yeah, yeah, sure. And she kept asking and got to a point that I felt that if I didn't apply, I was going to disappoint her. But I applied without thinking that I was ever going to be able to get the promotion. So, uh, <laughs> well, I mean, I, I, you know, you've got a job to do as well because there are people coming up behind you who need to have exactly that um, advice given to them. Uh, and I think it, it, it's not a question of, you know, men are more aggressive. It, it, it's more a question of just professional equity. Um, and okay, I, I was brought up in a, in a predominantly male orientated academic world. But that's got to change. Mm -hmm. We're losing half the workforce. So it is changing. Changing as fast as I can possibly change it. <laughs> no, no, I think that that's a very important discussion. Thank you. Yeah. And uh, my final question for you would be about uh, the impact of the pandemic. So we know that uh, particularly our junior researchers had their uh, biggest hit in terms of not being able to access uh, labs or having to stop trials, uh, losing funding as well. I was wondering if you have any ideas of how we as a community can, what we can do to support better these uh, junior researchers in the hypertension field. Yes, um, I think I would expand what's happened. Again, going back to the EDI agenda, our data clearly suggests that the young females have been more severely affected 
than the young male investigators, often because they had social responsibilities. So during lockdown, they couldn't even work at home mm -hmm. because there are children to educate at home or, you know, other, other duties or other dependents in the family requiring assistance. Uh, and so returning them to the research community and getting them reactivated has proved a real issue. And of course, some of the um, uh, individuals, both male and female, their funding ran out. So we, I mean, the, the funding bodies in the UK have been uh, very helpful with no cost extensions. So if the grant hasn't been spent up, you just continue it once you came back. Uh, others have um, put a bit more money into it. And the University of Manchester and the school have looked very hard at this. And we've tried to look at each individual case and assist them back in as quickly and as efficiently as possible. I think it does require sensitivity. It does require uh, some compassion. Um, but um, I certainly feel that my host institution has been very successful at this. And we seem to have got most people back that want to come back. Uh, we, we accept that the labs were shut for best part of a year and it's taken another year to get them all back up and fully running. Uh, the animal facility for the small animal research um, was, was largely halted closed a lot of the animals had to be sacrificed so it's taken a while to get all the cell lines back and and the the, the animals re, the animal lines re-established um, but um, the host institution and the funding bodies and the academic bodies the school executive and everything I think being compassionate and sensitive to every single case has, has largely Got, got us through um, and we're still working on it. We're still finding bridge money to get people back in and, and uh, getting another grant, uh, but not many have lo been lost. I, I'm, I'm pleased to report. That's Those that want to come back, we've got back, but it is a, a struggle, I accept. And probably in other countries where maybe, I don't know, they haven't been as, a successful bank account wise it may have been even more difficult but the message I would hand out to the mentees or the juniors whatever is stick at it it's going to get better yeah absolutely no, I think that's really good and hopefully we can also have lots of uh, travel uh, awards for them to come to the ISH in Tokyo and present their research yes well, I hope that would that would occur too. Uh, you know, having some more face-to-face -face meetings is yeah. what we need. Absolutely. Um, yeah. I taught last week abroad, and um, I see travel coming back, and um, I'm very happy with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Tony. This has been really lovely. I really enjoyed our conversation. Okay, it's a pleasure. Um, stay well. Thank you for listening to our interview. If you'd like more tips on mentoring, subscribe to our podcast for more interviews with senior and emerging leaders. Stay safe, open-minded and kind.